This episode, we see the return of Greg Potter. Greg has a PhD in nutrition, circadian rhythms, sleep, and metabolism, and he is the co-founder and chief science officer of Resilient Nutrition, whose products we discuss in this show. He also works as a health and performance consultant and is a regular speaker at international health summits. Highlights of Greg's career include working with the U.S. Naval Special Welfare, coaching a sprinter to four gold medals at the European Championships, helping two men break the world record while rowing the Atlantic, and having his research featured in dozens of international news outlets, including the BBC. Greg also likes science, mountains, diving, sunshine, techno, and fish pie. On this episode, Greg and I discuss many things. We discuss Greg's work with Resilient Nutrition. I ask Greg why he has decided to get involved in the supplement production industry, the nutritional supplements that Resilience produce and offer, the ergogenic benefits of ashwagandha, and finally, Greg gets into a great discussion on stress and anxiety and its effects on sleep and how to mitigate their effects on our sleep quality. Guys, this was a great conversation with Greg, jam-packed full of information as always, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Potter, absolute pleasure to have you on again. How are you doing? I'm well, mate. How are you? Phenomenal. As I suppose, listen, we, we all, we've all had our all had our own little COVID stories to tell. It's been a, a funny time, all right, in the world at the moment. But you're listening, as Lincoln said, this too shall pass. <laughs> I'm just in the midst of my master's dissertation, so I have to systematic review. And hopefully within five weeks, I'll have something worthy to submit. But apart from that, that's the main thing, keeping me busy. That, and as I said to you, I'm reading a few biographies, finished one on FDR, on one now about Lincoln. But listen, it's great to catch up and talk to you again. So since the last time we spoke, what has been new in your world? Quite a lot. I'm trying to think the last time we spoke was probably a year ago or so. So since then, the gypsy that I am, I've probably moved house about five times. (laughs) And I've moved house three times during this pandemic so far. And I'm actually moving house again next week. So that continues, but otherwise my work has changed a fair bit and I've spent most of this year so far starting up a new company with my good friend Ali and that company is named Resilient Nutrition and we're trying to make products that sustainably enhance both cognitive and physical performance and we started that off the back of some work that we did with some athletes last year and right now i'm pretty much working around the clock on that with a view to launching our first products in july which i think you've tried robbie my mic was down on my lap yes yeah continue <laughs> that's it that's that's what's been going on recently and come here what um what drove you to get into the supplement profession? So I mentioned we were working with a couple of athletes and my friend Ali and I were getting two guys ready to row the Atlantic last year in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And as you can imagine, when you've got two guys who are 5'9 or so and around 100 kilos, 
they have quite high energy intakes. And when they're rowing around the clock for over 30 days, they have very high energy intakes. And I was helping them with their nutrition and their sleep too a little bit. And so as we were formulating their nutrition plans, we were coming up with ideas about what snacks they needed. And we decided that having nut-based snacks made a lot of sense for them at certain occasions. And so we started making these products for them, which Ali actually was concocting in his kitchen. And we sent them to their boat with lots of these products. And they ended up doing really well. They actually broke the world record at the start this year. And we ourselves were using these products in different circumstances. Ali is an ultra-endurance athlete and has experienced lots of difficulties with his nutrition over time, finding things that were easy to digest, that wouldn't produce gastrointestinal discomfort during events, and finding things that were energy-dense enough to support his requirements if he's running for multiple days at a time. And so these were really born of that experience. And as we were using these in different contexts, we continued to refine the formulations of them. And then started to think, well, we find these really helpful. So is there a way to scale this? And I've therefore been just working on everything to do with getting these out to the masses since February. And hopefully we will be selling them online around the end of July. And I can go into some details about what they are if you like, but you might want to pick up on something now. Well, I just, I, I obviously, uh, I have the supplements here in my hand that you sent to me. And just, could you maybe describe the different line of supplements you have? Because, you know, I see here you have Calm and Rebuild, and then you have Energize, and then you have another supplement here, which is just Calm. And just even some of the ingredients in it too, you know. So I see that Ashwagandha is in both the Calm products, you know, to, to obviously Ashwagandha has some um, some properties that help with stress mitigation and also too there's um you know there, there's there's one here one of them here is actually quite high in in protein to the regeneration one so maybe just discuss the different brands you know why certain ingredients are in there maybe if you do have any you know you know of any literature or or you know science to, to back up why these uses of of ingredients in certain supplements and um, that'd be really great yeah so the products are available in four different versions and Basically, there are energized versions which are well suited to early in the day, so before a long day at work or before strenuous exercise, or they're very well suited to prolonged wakefulness. So if you're a shift worker, for example, and you're about to do a night shift, or if you're engaging in some sort of long distance travel, they're ideal for those scenarios too. And then there are the calm versions. And those, as you mentioned, contain ashwagandha. And anytime you're feeling a bit worked up, those are ideal for those times. And we generally use those a bit later in the day. And then both these energized versions and the calm versions are available in a rebuild version. And the rebuild version has added caffeine and, sorry, the rebuild version has added L-leucine and whey protein isolate. Mm. And so these are ideal as a meal replacement and they are supportive of skeletal muscle tissue regeneration. And those ingredients also tend to help with appetite control too. So if you need to 
keep hunger at bay. And if it's important to you to maximize your fat-free mass, then those are really good options. I can go into some of the science of the individual ones too, if you like, but broadly speaking, we have those four different ones, energize, energize and rebuild, calm, calm and rebuild, energize ones for early in the day, calm for late in the day, rebuild for when people want some added protein too. And why go the route of a higher fat supplement rather than say even just even there with like rebuild you know a lot of people would they'd have products where it's it's a protein and carbohydrate source Mm -hmm. you know obviously i suppose the main sort of argument there would be you know sort of speed of absorption you know post-training uh because fats could slowly slow things down but you guys have now i could understand maybe you know if it's more again and i know you'll touch on this if we're purely maybe talking about cognitive performance but why have you guys kind of centered this around more of protein and fat base rather than maybe have, you know, even one of your products, maybe a, a carbohydrate and protein based one? Sure. There are a few different reasons. So one is that if you think about the first context in which we use these, these guys needed very energy dense products. And of course, fat contains substantially more energy per unit of mass than carbohydrate or protein. And another consideration is that the longer the exercise, the lower the relative intensity and the greater the reliance on fat for energy. And for that reason, interestingly, if you look at ultra endurance events, so say single stage ultra marathons, then what you tend to find is that as the event goes on, people gravitate increasingly to more savory foods. And I think one of the reasons for that is that they are relying on fat oxidation to provide relatively more of their energy but also some of it might relate to the fact that they're losing some electrolytes in their sweat and more salty foods therefore are more attractive to them at those times. Mm -hmm. Another consideration was that some people find some commonly available products for endurance athletes quite difficult to digest. So for example, energy gels are very widely used and a lot of people find them very saccharine. And they might find that they cause some gastrointestinal distress too. And so we wanted to come up with an alternative to that. And then another one is that when you use those types of carbohydrates, especially if they're very high glycemic load carbohydrates, as many of those products are, people experience quite big fluctuations in their energy levels. And when you instead base something on nuts, your energy tends to remain much more even keeled. So really it was the confluence of those different things as well as our wish to enhance both physical and cognitive performance. And if you're going to be sat at your desk for a long period of time, then I'd argue that the type of smooth energy that we get from a nut-based product is probably going to be preferable from a high-carb product, which for many people is going to be more likely to lead to quite big fluctuations in things like their energy levels and possibly their appetite too. So just to wrap a little more context around this, would you say that, you know, you, you kind of just touched on like ultra endurance events there. What came to mind was Colin O'Brady, who was on Joe Rogan, and he's done some like, you know, phenomenal endurance feats. Um, like he crossed the Antarctic uh, completely solo, like, and he had to like drag his whole sled for mm-hmm. the whole adventure. And like his sled was basically just his food supply. And he mm-hmm. was talking about like these bars that he had to eat, like, and they were just literally just fat and protein because he was like, you know, you just lose so much weight out there in, in the, um, in the Antarctic. That is, I am correct in saying Antarctic. That's South Pole, isn't it? Antarctic. Yes. 
Um, just in case there's someone listening going, you idiot, you got that wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but so, you know, okay, if, if we're talking about, you know, cognition and being sharp from that standpoint and, you know, endurance-based type events, what about, you know, someone playing more of an intermittent sport, you know, so obviously alactic aerobic sports like, you know, soccer, rugby, Gaelic games, Australian rules football. Would you still think there's a benefit to taking these fat and protein-based supplements or would you lean more towards, right, these individuals are a little bit more, you know, inclined to use, you know, carbs. So, you know, um, something of more of a carb source to, to would be more beneficial for them. Sure. So I think in those instances, it's really important that athletes begin the events with full glycogen stores. Yeah. And in the case of something like a field sport, they are probably not going to have a dramatic effect on their muscle carbohydrate stores, for example, by mm. topping up at half time with some higher carb products. So the most important thing is that they start with full glycogen levels. And I'm absolutely not suggesting that it's preferable for these people to be on high fat diets or anything like that. Yeah. Instead what I say is that the energized versions of these products, because they contain about 300 milligrams of caffeine per hundred grams of product, they can provide significant, well, I think that they can provide significant performance enhancing effect to these athletes mm. on account of the caffeine content mm. alone so in that instance if you if you wanted a pre-workout product and the person has already replenished their carbohydrate stores after prior depleting exercise then using an energized version of long range fuel about an hour for exercise i think would be a good option mm. if it was consumed in an appropriate dose because there's a large body of evidence showing that Caffeine enhances performance in many different types of activities from yeah. endurance events to intermittent sprint type events to strength performance and power performance as well. So I would say it's, it's an alternative for those people. And as a pre-workout product, it's, it's a good option. Like I said, it was designed for endurance athletes and ultra endurance athletes. But I think for someone who needs a boost before any training session, if it's a short training session, then it's a, it's a really good option just consuming some of the energized products. Yeah, perfect answer. That's, that's kind of what I was getting to. So yeah, that uh, any any individual could get a benefit from the product, obviously that has that bit of caffeine in it, and also too, caffeine has been shown to um, help with reaction times, which is a big one too. Yeah, so the energized products contain caffeine and also L-theanine, specifically. The most studied form of L-theanine is called sun-theanine, which is a particularly mm. pure form of it. And caffeine has been studied in many contexts for its effects on cognition, and it reliably enhances things like attention, vigilance, reaction time, some aspects of executive function. And it's also been studied with L-theanine. And when you add L-theanine, you might experience less anxiety than you otherwise would because when people consume caffeine in high quantities sometimes they feel a bit jittery and the dose of l-theanine that we use has been shown by a recent meta-analysis to reliably reduce anxiety so the combination of caffeine and l-theanine should both support exercise performance and cognition but without any of those negative effects that people sometimes experience from consuming large quantities of caffeine 
just for the listeners, just in case anyone's not too familiar, what is L-theanine? It's an amino acid which is concentrated in tea. So if you consume green tea and you compare how you feel to after you've consumed a cup of coffee, you might feel that after green tea, you feel relatively more calm. Mm. And that L-theanine in green tea probably largely explains that. So is, is well, just before I go any further, what exactly does the L stand for? It's the, it's the form of the isomer. So you have L isomers and R isomers. Left and right, and, is it? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember being asked that question years ago, and I was given a when I used to teach at a personal training college. Like, why, why is it L? And I was like, let's find out. So we just went like googled it, and I was like, it was the position of like it was like its atomic structure. Was it something to do with like left and right, or I wasn't a hundred percent? Yeah, I, I don't recall the specifics of this, but I think that they're chiral, so they're non-superimposable mirror images of each other. Yeah, yeah. In the same way. Yeah, in the same way that your hands. I'm not. Are. I'm not going to pretend I I have a clue what we're talking about. <laughs> but come here now. So just I'm I'm a little bit confused here. So caffeine obviously is excitatory, but so is L-theanine an excitatory amino acid or is it an inhibitory amino acid? Just given what you said there in green tea. Yeah, well, it's it's anxiolytic. So in that way, if you are feeling too amped up. Hey, 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 hey! Explain that word before you go on now. It reduces anxiety. Oh, okay. That's what I mean when I say anxiolytic. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, have a, I have a tendency of using unnecessary... Fancy words. Yeah. I, I pretend that it makes me sound smart when it's perfectly obvious that that's not the case. So it tends to reduce anxiety, but it's, it's not a sedative. It, it, won't, it won't put you to sleep. There is some evidence that in people who have insomnia, for example, or difficulty sleeping... L-theanine might help with that, but it's not soporific in the same way that something like melatonin is. If you consume it acutely, it, it won't make you drowsy. It will just tend to promote relaxation. And when consumed by itself in adequate quantities, it does seem to have some positive effects on certain aspects of cognition too. Great stuff. So just uh, getting into one or two more ingredients here, tell us why ashwagandha is in some of these products. Yeah, so ashwagandha is in the products because, again, it tends to promote a sense of calmness. But unlike some other anxiolytic, to use that long word again, compounds, it seems to have a variety of beneficial effects on lots of different things. And the reason that I chose ashwagandha in this instance is that there's some evidence that it may be ergogenic which means performance enhancing. It literally means to do more work. So if you think about exercise, an ergogen is something that would allow you to do more work than you otherwise would be able to do. And the most common of those are caffeine and creatine. So if you look at the studies that have been done on ashwagandha and exercise, there have been, for example, a couple of studies looking at what happens when people consume 300 milligrams of ashwagandha twice a day on their adaptations to a structured strength and power training program. And what those studies have shown is that when people consume ashwagandha, they tend to gain muscle and strength at a slightly faster rate than a control group consuming a placebo. 
So ashwagandha not only has these effects on cognition that tend to promote relaxation, it also may enhance adaptations to certain types of exercise. And it's also been studied for a variety of other reasons too, one of which is reproductive function. There's some evidence that it will tend to support testosterone synthesis in men, for example. And among women, among women who have sexual dysfunction, it, it may basically increase the frequency of intercourse in those women, as well as, some of, as well as improving some of the problems that they currently face. So it's used in a variety of different contexts. It's been used for millennia in Ayurveda. Only recently has it been started... It only recently has it started to become a main focus for scientists over here. But the research so far, I think, is quite compelling. Even if the quality of many of the studies isn't that high, it does seem that A, it reduces anxiety, B, it can have some positive effects on performance, and then C, it might have some other positive effects on many different health parameters. Can you make a note, just if you can, if you have that study handy, the muscle building one, if, if you could send it to me and I put it in the show notes. Um, do, you know off head, do you know offhand if that study was single or, or double blind? I think it was double blind. And Very off good. the top of my head, I think Tim Zeigenfuss was one of the authors on it. And I will oh, award yeah. you that paper. I actually seen him present back in 2014 for ISSN. I liked him. He was good. Yeah. And, and I, I think that paper was actually published in JISSN. So it's free to access then, is it? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're 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 a great um, organization in terms of their journals. Like, um, go, are you going to say something there? No. Nope. Uh, I know. Before we hopped on, you said you wanted to talk about sleep. So floor is yours in terms of where you want to go in in terms of sleep, and I know you said you wanted to start touching that with regards to you know everything that's going on in the world right now and people's so stress anxiety levels being a little bit higher and i suppose maybe coping mechanisms for that so as i said the floor is yours yeah and i, I suggested it just because a i feel relatively well placed to speak about it mm. but b more importantly i think it's a really important subject at the moment and a lot of people are experiencing worse sleep than they were previously and I think most people have noticed changes in their sleep. And that applies to people who don't feel like their sleep quality, quality has in any way deteriorated. Mm. So one of the common reports, for example, is that people are experiencing longer and more vivid dreams than they previously were. And I think the reasons for this are probably twofold. One is that people are less likely to use alarms at the moment because they don't have to wake up at a certain time for work. But the other is that because this has been a challenging time for many of us, it may be that the stage of sleep in which we dream, REM sleep, is particularly important to helping people make sense of their circumstances. There's some evidence that it's particularly important to things like emotion regulation. So that might help explain why people are getting those so-called covid dreams but in terms of the more commonly experienced sleep problems at the moment i think if, if you look at the research that's come out and it's been interesting watching changes in the nature of science in the last few months because i think there's a tendency for journals to try and expedite the publication process because the situation is changing so quickly and whereas once it was fine for 
academics to take their time and go through various hoops before publishing right now there's a really there's a really strong need to get information out as quickly as possible mm. and for that reason a lot of people are spending much more time reading preprints and so on but in the last few weeks there's been a very large increase in the number of papers on the relationship between this pandemic and people's sleep and in general if you look at people who otherwise didn't necessarily really experience any sleep problems what those studies have tended to show is that if anything sleep duration might have increased slightly which again probably comes down to many of us having a bit more control over our schedules than we did previously and the variability in people's sleep might have declined a little bit so if you look at mid-sleep time on work days versus free days, for instance, then maybe it's a little bit smaller than it used to be, both of which are encouraging trends. But at the same time, people's sleep quality may be getting a little bit worse. And that can relate to all sorts of things from people's behaviours to the anxiety that has arisen as a result of all of the things that are going on in the world right now. And... Then people have also started to look at specific populations and obviously a natural choice is to look at medical staff and what's going on in frontline workers at the moment. And in general, the mental health of these people has been quite strongly affected, as you would expect, by the pandemic. And it may be that disruption to their sleep in part underlies that. And then what I would really like to emphasize is that even though we're seeing some of these negative changes in many people, there is the possibility for sleep to improve at this time. With greater control over our schedules, we can maybe have more regular sleep. And if we're good about doing things to help us better cope psychologically with the pandemic, we might be able to capitalize on that improved regularity and hence retain our high sleep quality while getting longer and more regular, more regular sleep. So I, I, can, I can jump into some of the things that I think can be very helpful in terms of improving people's sleep at the moment, Robbie, but I don't know if you want to jump in here anywhere. I just have two, two questions. Um, where specifically are you getting that data from, or is it just from feedback from clients you're working with in terms of, you know, that people are sleeping longer and they might be getting more cycles of REM sleep? Yeah, so the REM sleep is largely anecdotal at this stage, but it's so widely reported that people have started to discuss it and speculate as to why that's the case. And of course, studying dreams itself is quite a tricky process. But then with respect to some of the changes in things like sleep duration, sleep timing, and sleep quality, it comes from several different groups. So, for example, there's a Swiss researcher named Christian Kiyokan, who's out at Basel, and, and he has looked specifically at some of these changes in adults from multiple countries in the EU, and basically looked at people's sleep during the pandemic and compared it to before the, before the pandemic. And what that group found was that sleep duration increased and difference between sleep duration on work days and free days decreased and 
sleep quality deteriorated, which was largely driven by the fact that these people felt more burdened. Mm-hmm. And they also found in their analysis, and this is something that we can get to later, that people who had more regular sleep spent more time outside in daylight and were more physically active, had longer, better sleep, which is no great surprise to you, Robbie, of course. So that was one of the papers, which I think is particularly relevant to many of the people listening to this. They were breaking the guidelines, the bastards. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's country-specific, so maybe some of them were, but others may have been behaving themselves. I'm only joking. I don't give a fuck anyway. Fuck the law. (laughs) As we say here now, fuck the law. And then some other researchers have looked at students. So Ken Wright's group out in Colorado at the University of Boulder have looked at sleep before and during the pandemic in what I think was just one of their university classes. And they found that these people were spending more time in bed during the lockdown period. And they tended to sleep a bit later. And this is something I was getting at earlier. People can sleep in better alignment with their chronotype at the moment because we don't have to be up at a certain time for work or school, for example. And again, this difference in sleep timing between work days and non-work days, or in this instance, weekdays and weekends, decreased. And these studies aren't perfect by any means, but... One thing that is interesting to note is that in the case of Christian Kyokin's study, these adults were healthy, affluent, well-educated people. So their sleep was already quite good. And they, they may have been less negatively affected by the pandemic than some people otherwise would have been. And then in the case of these students, they're they're based at the University of Boulder in Colorado. They are interested in sleep and study it. They had excellent sleep at baseline. And Boulder actually has a very low proportion of adults who don't get enough sleep. And it's renowned as being a very healthy place to live. So if you look at some of these changes in terms of sleep quality, it's likely that both of these studies are actually underestimating the burden that the pandemic can impose on people. So those are a couple of the studies been published, but then there are some additional studies that have been done in the EU. So for example, people have looked at what's happened in Italian adults. And again, the findings are quite consistent with the ones that I've just mentioned, but also there are things that modify these associations such as existing mood disorders. So people who experience depression and anxiety and stress will tend to have their sleep more affected by the pandemic. And then also there are some Greek researchers who have looked at changes in sleep. And in general, what these studies show is that the prevalence of sleep problems is higher than it previously was. And interestingly, these particular researchers found that people in urban areas were more susceptible to sleep problems than people in more rural areas. And as you might imagine, there are some other things too that might influence sleep. So things like how lonely people feel, how worried they are about the pandemic, and possibly some other factors too. So living alone, for example, or or not being in a relationship is one of those factors that can contribute. 
So those are studies in relatively healthy adults or the general population. But much of this work has looked at medical staff specifically. And actually, that there have been enough studies on this subject at this point in time that there's even been a meta-analysis done Jeez. on, I know, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? on the prevalence of depression, anxiety, and insomnia in healthcare workers. And in this meta-analysis, which is, again, just about sleep during this pandemic, they included 13 studies, and they basically found that the insomnia prevalence in these studies was about 39% across the relevant studies. And interestingly, they also found that female healthcare workers and nurses were more likely to experience some of the negative consequences of this pandemic on sleep and mental health. So basically what the data are showing is that for most of us, we've got more regular sleep than we previously had. We might be sleeping slightly longer, but our sleep quality has declined and rates of sleep problems may have increased. And then there are these individual groups of people who may be particularly vulnerable at this point in time and foremost among those are the frontline workers of the world like the one thought running through my head there and kind of you've already sort of alluded to it is like how fast was the turnaround in all these studies from submission to the review process to publication mm-hmm. i mean i don't think i've ever heard of papers being published so fast Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? And one thing that we have to consider is that the majority of these studies rely on self-reported sleep. That's what I mean. Yeah, so so maybe, I mean, if you you look, for example, at the study that the researchers from Switzerland did, Hmm. then they did this retrospective analysis in which they asked people about their sleep right now during the pandemic, and then they asked them to recall what their sleep was like shortly before the pandemic so and they just, repeat the same sorry, questions. Greg, so Greg, just personally a question to you. How much weight would you put into that? Cause you know, retrospective studies are, are pretty poor. Yeah. Maybe not, not, not in terms of, of like the actual researchers themselves, but in terms of the information they get back. Cause again, we spoke about this before we hopped online that we were talking about like human rationality and how like, just like humans aren't rational and off the work of Kahneman and another thing Kahneman talks about is that like, we're just brutal at recalling certain experiences in our life and we're terrible at prediction as well but just in terms of recalling previous experiences he actually has a chapter in the book like the the the, what was it the where he talks about basically talking about like your memory of the experience is very different from what you experience in the moment i i think that there are there are several different types of bias that could exist in these studies So one is selection bias. These aren't random samples of people necessarily. They're often friends, colleagues, or students of the scientists who are involved. So so there's that. But as I mentioned earlier, in general, what that's led to in these instances is a more healthy group of people than would otherwise have been studied. And it's likely that the sleep of these people has been less affected than others would have been. Then, as you mentioned, there's recall bias. So do you accurately recall your sleep, both your recent sleep and your sleep from however many months ago the period was? And people aren't that good at assessing their sleep. At the same time, devices which are held up as being objective generally aren't that good at assessing sleep. So 
I, I put quite a lot of stock in those data personally. Mm. And one thing to consider is that when they're asking them to recall their sleep before the pandemic, this thing has not been going on for that long. So it's not like you're asking them to recall what their sleep was like in 2017. It's I know, but, it, but like. it's just, it's just that like, sorry, it's, intro, it's just that most people, mm. well, I suppose that you could turn back to me and say, where are you getting that from? But it seems to be most people's sleep is brutal anyway. And they could be just, it could be just like, because we're in the middle of the pandemic, they're like, Oh, it's even worse now. Do you know? It's like, you know, how, how do we know? Like really that you could sit like, it's like how much worse, like, it's just that it seems that most people had brutal sleep anyway, before pandemic came along. Maybe it's just because they're more anxiety filled throughout the day or the, because of COVID is on their mind more so today that they feel that they're sleeping worse at night. But, it mightn't be statistically that much worse, you know what I'm kind of trying to say to you? Yeah, and, and that's an important point, you know, how meaningful are relatively small changes in some of these sleep parameters? And I think they are meaningful when they accumulate over time. time yeah. but, but something that people need to recognise is that most sleep disturbances that we experience are transient. And one of the difficult things in insomnia in particular is that when people experience insomnia acutely, and when I say insomnia, what I'm referring to is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or feeling like your sleep was restorative or difficulty because you're waking up much earlier than you would like to. Any of those things, in addition to some sort of daytime dysfunction, which might be difficulty recalling things, for instance, difficulty concentrating at work. If, If you look at insomnia, the issue with insomnia is that when people start to experience poorer sleep, especially if they've been reading about the negative consequences of that, then they might feel like they're doomed, which can then perpetuate their sleep problems. And when people can step back and recognize that most of these things are transient and will resolve of their own accord when the stimulus that disrupted the sleep is removed they feel much better about life. Mm. So I I don't ever want to overemphasize the negative consequences of of some of these relatively small disruptions to sleep from time to time, because we just need to recognize that our our bodies are good at defending certain things and and sleep is generally one of them. Yeah. The second question I had um, was, you said that there's some research to show that REM sleep um, may have potential to help with uh, emotional healing. And I know I read that in Matthew Walker's book, but I thought that was purely just speculation on his part. Is there actually now some research to show or to, to start to show that maybe that is the case, that REM sleep can be some sort of a therapeutic process in terms of emotional stress? Yeah, so I I can't speak to specific studies because I haven't looked at these studies recently, but it's possible to use accurate measures of assessing sleep, namely polysomnography, to sleep stage people and then to use certain stimuli to disrupt specific stages of sleep or to enhance other stages of sleep. So, for example, there are numerous studies that have looked at the effects of selective enhancement of slow wave sleep, which is the deepest stage of sleep that we experience. And Mm. especially in elderly people, that seems to help protect against cognitive decline over time. And if you 
deliver certain stimuli during the REM period, then what you can do is you can disrupt REM sleep, but without necessarily affecting total sleep time. So in that way, you can start to isolate the relative importance of REM sleep to certain outcomes. And then you can subsequently assess various different facets of emotion regulation Mm -hmm. to find out whether the disruptive stimuli led to any changes in emotion regulation. And there have been those studies done and those studies do tend to support that notion. So before I ask those two follow questions, you were just about to get into some recommendations and strategies for people who may be struggling with their sleep currently. I think that's where yeah. you're going. Yeah, well, th- this, is, this is something that we could spend a lot of time on, Robbie. So I, I don't know if you want to touch on the, the other things that you wanted to discuss first. No, the, the, I actually had nothing else. You, but just before I had, I've asked my two questions to your previous mm. um to your previous sort of uh, discussion and then you were going to go into another topic area before I asked. So if you want to go into that specific topic area, I think you were going to start talking about some strategies to, to mitigate um, uh, issues people have with their sleep currently because of the stress caused by things like the pandemic and whatnot. Yeah. And, and I could, I could have gone into a few different groups of people and, and how their sleep is likely being affected by this particular time. So for example, there are people who had insomnia prior to the pandemic. And then during this pandemic, for some of them, their sleep has improved and for others it's deteriorated. There are also people with certain other sleep disorders. And I think one potentially particularly problematic disorder at the moment is sleep apnea. Mm. And that's in part because of the way that it's treated. So for people who have obstructive sleep apnea, One of the issues is that they generally require a type of therapy named continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP. And the problem with this is that when you put those CPAP machines on, what will tend to happen is that you generate more droplets and airborne particles. So if somebody has COVID-19, then you can increase the transmission of the virus in that way. And as you can imagine, for people who have COVID-19 in hospital wards and so on, using CPAP machines at night poses some particular problems. So there's some specific guidelines for those people that we could get into. But I think it's worth focusing on the majority of people listening to this who won't otherwise have had any sort of existing sleep problems but maybe now they're experiencing a bit of disruption. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Cool. And and so to that end, what I would say is you first want to identify whether you have any sort of sleep issues. And there are some simple questionnaires that you can use to that end. One that I like is called Sleep 50. And it's just a 50-item questionnaire that's really easy to score. And it can highlight whether you likely experience from one of the main categories of sleep disorders. And then if it does flag something, you can seek some additional help. But for everybody, if you're experiencing some sort of sleep problem, then I think occasional monitoring of your sleep is helpful. Mm. And there are lots of ways to do that. Wearables are handy because they continuously monitor your sleep in a way which is non-invasive and ambient. But also there are some people who read too much into those data. And ironically, 
having one of those wearables can actually disrupt their sleep. There was this term orthosomnia coined quite recently, which describes that phenomenon, people who become obsessed with getting the perfect sleep. And the funny thing about sleep is that the more that you focus on it and try to optimize it, quite often the more that it deteriorates. And so if you're not experiencing any sleep problems, I would say don't worry about your sleep and you can turn this podcast off now. <laughs> but for, for people who are having some sleep problems at the moment, I think tracking your sleep for a week or two initially is useful. And I would track it using a sleep diary. And there are lots of those available. My favorite is actually a, a diary that comes with the Sleepio Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia program. If, if you have access to Sleepio, then you can download that for free. But if you don't, then there are similar diaries that are available online. You can just use a physical diary. And if you do that, I would use the Consensus Sleep Diary. If you use an online one, then you might use something like the one available at bettersleepproject.com. And track your sleep over time, and then you can work out whether some of these interventions that you're trying are positively or negatively affecting your sleep. And in terms of sleep, I think during this current time, there are certain things that are particularly likely to be problematic. And one of those, of course, is exposure to the news. If you're spending lots of time reading about how everything is going tits up in the world at the moment, then that might prey on your mind, especially if you're exposing yourself to that type of news relatively late in the day. And your exposure to these types of media will also influence your mental health in general. So I think if it's possible, you probably want to limit your exposure to those types of news in the first half of your waking day. And you also want to be quite particular about how you curate that information. People are increasingly turning to social media for information about the news, even though they will explicitly say that they don't trust the news that they get through social media as much as they do through more established media outlets. So I think putting a cap on your media exposure makes a lot of sense. Another issue that is really problematic at the moment is social support. And there have been studies looking at medical staff showing that among people who have more social support, they're less likely to experience sleep difficulties during this particular time. So in the same way that diet isn't inherently a good thing or a bad thing, but instead the composition of your diet influences how your body responds to those foods and drinks. The composition of the media that you're exposed to and how you use your devices so the composition of your screen time, for instance, will largely influence whether it's good or bad. And when it comes to social support, what that means is just being quite particular about how you use your smartphone and your laptop and so on. So you want to use those devices to share fun content and to reach out to people that you care about. And Robbie, I know before we started speaking today, we were talking about what we've been up to recently and different things that we've enjoyed. And I mentioned a podcast named The Happiness Lab. And one of the things that Laurie Santos, who is the host of that podcast, speaks about a lot is the fact that if you want to be happy, then it makes sense to focus on making others happy. So simply reaching out to people who you care about on a regular basis is likely to 
both be good for those other people, but also help you feel more socially connected with others and thereby avoid some of these negative consequences of a lack of social support. Then I mentioned earlier that in general, people who are more physically active and get more light exposure tend to sleep better at the moment. And, And that's true whether there's a pandemic or not. But I think especially during lockdown periods, we we need to be more active about being active and spending time outside. And that can entail simple habits like eating outside if it's possible. If you have a garden, maybe you have breakfast outside, for instance. But also you might benefit from trying to work physical activity into your day. And one way to do so is to actually couple that with some social support. Lots of people are doing workouts via Zoom or online classes via Zoom. And the great thing about that is that you're getting the benefits of the movement, you're getting the benefits of interacting with other people, and you're more likely to do the physical activity because you're accountable to the other people who are involved. So in that way, it's, it's a trifecta of positivity, if you like. And if you, you, if you can't get outside for whatever reason, then I think just trying to increase your light exposure indoors is likely a good thing so maybe that might entail working by a window for example or you could get a bright light therapy lamp if if your mood is low right now and use that for at least half an hour each day and you probably want to be within a meter or so of the lamp and then there are some other things i think during the daytime which can be particularly helpful so one which a lot of people discuss is meditation and just learning to be accepting of the circumstances and to be able to recognize that you don't really control how we feel or what we think about from one moment to the next. These are things that just arise of their own accord. And we can either reflexively respond to those thoughts and feelings, or we can learn to distance ourselves from them and then decide how we respond after experiencing those changes. And I think simply developing a meditation practice of 10 minutes or so a day, probably preferably earlier in the day because you're more likely to engage in it. Maybe pairing that with some sort of existing habit is a good way to go. And then I think in terms of negative thoughts and coping with those, there are a couple of strategies that are particularly helpful during the daytime at the moment. And one of these, which often makes people chuckle when they first hear it is actually scheduling time to worry, having some scheduled worry time each day, because many of us are pretty busy during the day. We're still working, albeit remotely, or there are kids running around at home, or maybe we're trying to reach out to people or look after others, or maybe we're trying to manage some sort of temporary crisis. If that's the case, then we've got all these things that are occupying our minds until a certain time of day, but then later in the evening, all of those negative thoughts and worries that have been suppressed by those activities during the day can start to percolate to the surface. And what we can do is we can schedule some time in the early evening in which we simply list out those worries, as well as corresponding actions that we can take to address those worries. Now, pick the the smallest and most immediate action that you can take. And in some instances, there won't be actions that you can take to control these things. Maybe you're concerned about the state of world politics, for example. You're probably not going to be able to do much to move that dial. 
But if that's the case, then you could just simply list that and list the, there's nothing that you can do about that, but that might help you accept that and get those thoughts out of your head such that when you then go to bed, it's less likely to disrupt your sleep. And then something that I mentioned before is that you, you can, of course, make a to-do list for the next day around this time of day, which for those of us who are very busy can be helpful because then we don't go to bed thinking about and ruminating on all the different things that we need to get done the next day. So I think those are some of the things that are particularly helpful at this time. And they really work in conjunction with all of those sleep hygiene things that I'm sure numerous people have discussed with you before on your podcast, Robbie. But then there are some things during the nighttime itself that I think can be particularly handy. So I'm going to pass the baton back to you in case you want to pick up on anything. No, everything you said there is spot on. I've nothing to ask or to add to that. So, I mean, those are great recommendations. Um, and no doubt a lot of people listening to this can take a lot away from what you've just spoke about there. Just in terms, Greg, of people reaching out to you in terms now of, um, you know, resilient nutrition, in terms of, you know, hiring you as a consultant, where could people find out more information? For resilient nutrition, the website is resilientnutrition.com. It's resilient with a T. And the social media handles are at resilient nuts. And then for me personally, my Instagram and Twitter are at Greg Potter PhD. I have a website which is gregpotterphd.com through which you can contact me. I need to update that website, but right now it feels like there aren't quite enough hours in the day, so I haven't got around to that recently. But feel free to say hi or ask any questions through any of those avenues. Great stuff. And just a selfless question for myself. What are you currently reading? I'm reading Endure by Alex Hutchinson. Oh, is it good? And yeah, very good. Uh, I really I really enjoy his writing. So I'm reading that. I'm reading David Attenborough's book about his early career, albeit oh. very intermittently. And I've got Why Evolution is True by Jerry Coyne on the go. Mm. Again, just dip in and out of it. I, I'm one of these people who normally is reading four or five different books. And then I'm also reading a business book called Crossing the Chasm, which is basically about trying to make the transition from effectively getting your idea out among your initial target market to crossing over into other mass markets. So I've got those on the go. I think uh, on one of the last uh, occasions we spoke, were you telling me that like you, you got, is it because you, you, were you doing some work at Wiley or some book publishing company? And like they gave you like a stipend for books. Was that you? And like you, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, you got like a lot of you got like a lot of economy, economic books or something like that. That's right. Yeah, good, good memory. Yeah, I I published a book chapter for an Oxford University Press book. Oxford University. Yeah, and they they just they just gave me a bunch of money to spend in their shop. And one of the books was Why Evolution Is True by Jerry Coyne. But I wasn't reading that one last time we spoke. It's just one of the ones that. I picked. I've also got a book on ethics to get to, Guess. and a neuroscience textbook to get to. So yeah. I haven't made my way through all of those ones yet. Yeah, neuroscience. Talking my language, man. Uh, Greg, that was savage. Um, I always appreciate speaking to you, um, and you always have fantastic information to share. 
So is there anything that I didn't ask that you would have liked me to ask before I wrap up? I don't think so. Not really. I mean, we, we could go on to discuss things that people can do during the night time if they're, if they're struggling to sleep through the night. But we can, we can leave that conversation for another time. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great to have a part two if you like, or give us an excuse to to get, hop on a podcast again. So, guys, everything that was mentioned in the show, I'll do my best to link up in the show notes. Just regards to like all the research that Craig always mentions. Anytime I do show notes for our, our podcast, it's like, oh no, the amount of papers I have to go find now. <laughs> but it's all good. But for now, for everyone listening, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Thank you.